it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, October 12, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time and around the clock for free on demand on our podcast. All of that information, listening live, getting the podcast right in one spot, our online home, GuyBensonShow.com. It's that easy. GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social media, both Twitter and Instagram. Same handle, at GuyBensonShow. Broadcasting today and tomorrow from 106.3 FM Extra here in Atlanta, our great affiliate down here in Georgia, which is once again shaping up to be a ground zero state in American politics. So thrilled to be here and supposed to be going to the Braves playoff game a bit later on. So fingers crossed on the weather. It's a bit damp here in Georgia, at least at the moment. We've got a big lineup for you in store here on the radio show today. Congressman Chip Roy will join us later in the hour reacting to a new bombshell report on the border crisis from our colleague Bill Malugin. We will fill you in on what Bill has unearthed and get the congressman's response. In the next hour, Josh Krasauer will be here talking about national politics, what he is seeing, the tea leaves that he is reading. Plus, we'll get some inside baseball later in the hour on the ground here in Georgia from someone who follows it every single day. In our final hour, the happy hour, just after 5 p.m. Eastern, Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal. She was on the panel with me last night. It was quite eventful. We'll be talking about that and much more with Kim. That, again, is in our final hour here today. But we begin today's show with one of our favorite guests, the Honorable Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, founder of Stand for America PAC. She is out with a brand new book. She's been promoting it all over the place. I've seen her. It's called If You Want Something Done, Leadership Lessons from Bold Women, and I'm holding this book right here in my hand. It's this very striking sort of light green cover. Nikki Haley joins us once again, and it's great to have you back. Thanks so much, Guy. Great to be with you again. Let's first start talking about the book, and I was flipping through it. I just got my copy, and I see that you have broken it up by chapter and talking about these lessons in leadership from a whole host of women through history, and you start with one of my absolute all-time favorites, if not my very favorite, Margaret Thatcher, just going through here, Jeannie Kirkpatrick, I, I saw Golda Meir also. How did you select the women to profile, and what's the goal of the book, and what's the intended audience for the book? Well, you know, Guy, the, the book, the title of the book comes after the quote, if you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman, the famous right. Margaret Thatcher quote. Yes. The reason that I wrote the book was the publisher had really been on me um, and asked me to write this because they said that there were a lot of books on um, leadership from men, but there were very few on women leadership. And so 
I was thinking back to when I was growing up, I remember always looking for women leaders in rural South Carolina, and I didn't see any. And so in second grade, I would go to the library and check out books on women, and the only books there at the time were of first ladies. And I loved the fact that they were partners to their husbands and all the things they did behind the scenes that that so many wouldn't have known. And then I thought, you know, I really need to write this because there's so many women that have changed history. And these are ordinary women that became extraordinary. And my favorite has always been Margaret Thatcher. And what I loved was, you know, here she was a grocer's daughter. She was underestimated. But, you know, as much as she believed in Britain, she believed in herself. And she erased 40 years of socialism in 10 years. And then there was Jean Kirkpatrick, who was my predecessor. She was the first female U.N. ambassador. And she was the one that really disliked the anti-Americanism that she saw, not just at the U.N., but that she saw in our own country. And, you know, she came in as a Democrat under the Reagan administration. But she ended up switching parties because she said she was tired of how Democrats always blamed America first. Mm -hmm. Now, think about how ironic that is. You know, 40 years later, we're still talking about the same things. But then I talked about people that weren't political. You know, I went and talked about someone like Claudette Colvin. Everybody knows that Rosa Parks refused to get off the bus, and she's been a courageous um, icon for a long time. And But what they don't know is nine months earlier— there was actually a 15-year-old Claudette Colvin who refused to get off the bus. She had been studying the Constitution in school, and when they tried to get her off the bus, she said, no, it's my constitutional right. She was arrested. She was put in jail. But because she didn't come from the right social circles, because they thought she was too feisty and too emotional, they didn't want her to be the face of the movement. So they fast-forwarded, and they created Rosa Parks, and they had Rosa Parks do it because she was a part of the NAACP. She was from the right social circle. She was older. But the actual real courage of it all came from a 15-year-old girl. And what I hope is that as those of us that are parents, we know that if you raise strong girls to be strong women, strong women become strong leaders. And so I hope this is a gift that parents will give to their children and their grandchildren, that women will give to their sisters and their friends and mentors to just kind of motivate all of us that, you know, we need women to remember to get out there because when they get out there, they can really change the world. Yeah, maybe a gift for a daughter or a granddaughter in your life in particular. And I do want to ask you just one more question about your experience as a leader, both at the sort of uh, executive level, of course, in South Carolina, but then in a very different role, but a highly scrutinized one on behalf of the Trump administration in the United States of America at the United Nations Conservatives, we, we don't like to play identity politics. That is typically the, the other side's game. That being said, I think it is indisputable that women in positions of power and women in the public eye sometimes, if not often, are treated differently than men. Some ways maybe a little bit better, in a lot of ways worse, uh, indisputably worse. Given your leadership through your career, what has that been like for you? How has that difference played out in your mind? And how can we get to a place where there really isn't a difference between men and women in leadership positions, at least the way they're perceived, the way they're treated? Well, there were never any lines to the women's bathroom in any of the positions I held. <laughs> I mean, it was I was the first female minority governor in the country. I was the only woman on the Security Council at the U.N. But this is what I say, um, you know, in the book is 
is women don't need special treatment. We don't need any favors. We don't need quotas. We just need opportunities because when we get opportunities, we show what we're made of and we show how good we can be. And so, you know, was it tough? Yes, but I don't think it was any tougher because I was a woman. I think that, you know, at the time um, we were, South Carolina was the lowest in the country on women elected officials. But I don't think that's because men gave us a hard time. I think it's because women didn't run. And I think that, you know, what I hope this book does is remind women that if you work hard, you know, you can prove that you deserve to be in the room and you can make a difference. And that's the best thing that women can do is to make sure whatever they do, be great at it and make sure people remember you for it. I mean, yes, there's some challenges with women. I think men have some challenges, too. Um, But I don't want women to focus on that. I want women to realize that there's other women that come up behind them. And so it's really important that they represent well, that they be strong, that they do things that lift up everybody, and that'll make the biggest difference in the country. Nikki Haley is my guest, and I want to ask you about this. Turning to current events, President Joe Biden gave an interview to CNN's Jake Tapper last night, and one of the things that came up was Biden's reported comments at a Democratic fundraiser. He was kind of just sort of spitballing and riffing about nuclear Armageddon, and that got out everywhere, and a lot of people were critical of the, the forum for that and sort of the loose words, given how serious the subject was. And we've had expert guests on the show who have been critical of what he said. He was asked about it by Tapper last night. Here was what went down in Cut 16. Do you think in any way discussing this type of thing publicly, openly, Putin's possible use of nuclear weapons might have the opposite effect of what you want? It might make some of our wobblier European allies be even more scared of confronting Putin? Well, no, I don't think so at all. I think, look, there was a, a, a directed... When I'm talking about I'm talking to Putin. He, in fact, cannot continue with impunity to talk about the use of a tactical nuclear weapon as if that's a rational thing to do. The mistakes get made, and the miscalculation could occur. No one can be sure what would happen, and it could end in Armageddon. So there's that word again, Armageddon. He's saying that the remarks off the cuff at the political fundraiser were directed at Putin. Your thoughts on this? I think it's totally irresponsible. It was irresponsible because, one, you cause concern, you know, from regular Americans that you're supposed to show that you're in charge, that you've got things under control. And, you know, that statement basically implied that you didn't. Secondly, it shows weakness in the eyes of the world. I mean, I don't want Putin hearing that. He's going to think that he's getting under Biden's skin. I don't want the Europeans and NATO to hear that because they need to continue doing what they're doing by supporting Ukraine and their efforts. And, you know, I guy, I can't figure out if he says these things to kind of make himself sound bigger or why he says these things. But it was just really irresponsible on every level. I mean, I don't know what the need of that was. I don't know if that's an internal fear that he has, um, but it was just wrong. And what we need to be doing is showing strength in our words and our actions. We need to be getting our coalition with, with NATO and the Europeans together so that Ukraine can stay strong and so that Ukraine can finish the deal. And, if, and that's the biggest thing that we can do, because right now we know Putin is suffering. We know that from the fact that he's lost the confidence of his people. He's lost the confidence of his military. He's raised the draft age in Russia to 65. You know, when you're getting your drones from Iran and you're getting your rockets from North Korea, 
you're in a bad place, and Putin knows that. And is he dangerous? Is there a chance of nuclear weapons? That's true for any tyrant. But you don't say these things and you don't run for the hills. You press on the gas and you let him know that there will be consequences to pay should he even try and do that. I also want to get your response to this from the same interview on Saudi Arabia. And clearly the president is frustrated with the Saudis right now for various reasons. I'm not here to defend the Saudi regime on everything that they do, obviously. But I think there's some politics creeping in here. They're upset uh, in the White House about the Saudis and OPEC curbing some of the oil production and that creating a political problem for the Democrats here at home. In Cut 36, here was Biden on the Saudis. Do you think it's time for the U.S. to rethink its relationship with Saudi Arabia? Yes. And by the way, let's get straight why I went. I didn't go to one about oil. I went about making sure that we made sure that we weren't going to walk away from the Middle East and what was going on. You but, would. but we should. We should. And I am uh, in the process when the, when the uh, uh, this House and Senate gets back, they're going to have to uh, there's going to be some consequences for what they've done with Russia. I mean, he says he didn't go over there recently about oil. I think that that's a little bit silly. And it's also strange to talk about consequences for the Saudis when they're reorienting themselves again, just like the Obama administration, toward Iran, especially given what's happened in the interim during the administration you served in with the Abraham Accords. It just feels like Biden is kind of stuck in 2009 and his foreign policy team are stuck in this universe and world that doesn't even really exist anymore. So many things wrong with this. So many things. I mean, first of all, you know, he keeps trying to prove to Americans that he didn't go to Saudi to talk about oil. Okay, well, that's problem number one, because you probably should have talked to them about it. And the reason that he didn't talk about it, that's a problem in itself. The second thing is, he totally did this. He is responsible for all of this. First of all, If you're not going to go and allow us to open up energy production so that we don't have to rely on anyone, then you're setting us up for a situation that we're in right now. Secondly, if you are going to do that, then don't call the one that you're going to be, you know, depending on. Don't call on the rest of the world to call him an international pariah. And don't go falling all over yourself to get into an Iran deal that none of the Arab countries want America to get into. And so everything he's done has been in opposition to what the Saudis want, and this is the Saudis sticking it back to him. And so now I think he's wrong to say he's going to go and stick it to the Saudis because all you're doing is digging a deeper hole. You know, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia is in his 30s. He's going to outlast every leader that that currently lives right now. So don't upset that person. Um, But, you know, the real answer to this is, Go back. We should be exporting as much liquefied natural gas as we can. We should be meeting with our oil producers saying, what is it that you need from us and giving them confidence? He's done the total opposite in all of these things. And apparently he doesn't see that. Yeah. Lashing out at the Saudis, begging the Venezuelans, begging the Iranians for certain things, hostility toward our energy sector here at home for political reasons. It's just a very bizarre contradictory, incoherent brew of policies that they've got on energy. And we've got to leave it there for now because I know you've got places to be. We've got a break that we're coming up on. But I do want to remind everyone about your book. If you want something done by Nikki Haley, my guest, 
And I have to tell you, not making this up during this interview, while you were answering one of my questions on President Biden, my dad texted me and said he wants to get your book for my sister, his daughter. So you've got another book sold based on this interview. And maybe one day, you know, if I see you in D.C. or if I'm down in, let's say, South Carolina for, let's say, a football game, for example, maybe we can get it signed for my sister. I would love to. And tell your dad thank you. And I hope everybody will go to NikkiHaleyBook.com to see where we're at on our book tour. NikkiHaleyBook.com. If you want something done, by Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador. Great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, guys. Nikki Haley on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. I want to quickly spotlight a Senate race that we've touched on a few times. In fact, we had Senator Johnson here on the show recently in Wisconsin. Ron Johnson was looking vulnerable, definitely over the summer, down in a number of polls. He has surged a comeback and edging out into the lead over a man named Mandela Barnes, who's the Democrat. They cleared the field for this guy on the Democratic side, knowing you would presume all of his vulnerabilities, especially on crime. He is right up there with John Fetterman as one of the worst candidates in the country on crime. Defund the police, all of that insanity. No bail, all of this stuff. And he is trying to pretend that that record isn't his, but it is. It's a matter of record. And our colleague Hillary Vaughn was asking him about it in Wisconsin. And here's what that sounded like in Cut 37. What changed if you're saying now that you support more funding for police? I said I have supported uh, state budgets that increase more funding for law enforcement. Do you still stand by comments you made about reallocating money away from the police, Lieutenant Governor? And he just walks away. Because he's trying to pretend, oh, no, I I don't believe that. I increased the funding. But he had talked about defunding the police. Openly. Do you stand by those comments was the question, and he just wanders away. Not exactly confidence-inspiring, not exactly someone who has confidence in his own positions and things that he said. He knows that they're a big problem. So off he ran rather than answering the question. And on that race, in this contest, brand new poll out today from Marquette, which they consider the gold standard poll up in Wisconsin. The Marquette poll has Ron Johnson now up six in that race, six points, with the governor's race tied. Maybe Mandela Barnes wasn't a great bet for the Democrats. Ron Johnson, now the favorite to win re-election, it would seem, in the Badger State. We will turn to the border. Wait to hear this next. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, 
Very glad to have you here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. And the podcast is always free on demand when the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, again, your one-stop shop for all of our content here. Well, a topic that we have talked quite a lot about, broadly, of course, is the border and the border crisis. Not going to let that go. And relatedly, one of the episodes in the border crisis that has bothered me the most, as regular listeners are aware, is the whipping smear against Border Patrol agents last year, where based on misleading photographs and images, a bunch of people decided, basically Twitter leftists and journalists, it's the same hive mind, they decided that Border Patrol agents on horseback were whipping Haitian illegal immigrants. And the people with the whips had lighter skin and the Haitians had darker skin and they turned into this dark sort of racial tale. And everyone got very, very angry very, very quickly before they knew really what the facts even were. And someone who piled on aggressively, foolishly, was the president of the United States. And the White House, the administration, they joined in on the smear that was just not true. There were no whips. No one was whipped. There were reins being used to control the horses. No one was being whipped. And yet the lie went all over the country, all over the world. In a matter of minutes, it felt like. With the president leading the way, which was disgraceful. Here's a guy who will not say a word about the border crisis. And the same thing applies to much of the media, by the way. Crickets. Look away. Nothing to see here with this historic crisis raging. They don't want to talk about it. But Biden could pop up and weigh in when there was an opportunity to dump on U.S. officials based on a lie. That was his big moment where suddenly he was eager to talk about it. At the White House podium, Jen Psaki, KJP's predecessor, said the president was horrified. Cut 30. Once he had a, uh, an opportunity to see the photos, see the video footage, as you saw him say in a statement last night and again this morning, he was horrified. Uh, he believes this does not represent who we are as a country and does not represent the positions of the Biden-Harris administration. Yeah, horrified. Biden himself was not just horrified. He made a promise that the people responsible for the fake outrage would be punished, cut 31. Of course I take responsibility. I'm president, but it was horrible what to see, as you saw. To see people treated like they did, horses barely running over, people being strapped, it's outrageous. I promise you those people will pay. They will be an investigation underway now, and there will be consequences. Those people will pay. Talking about the agents who didn't whip anyone. But he biased the investigation from the very beginning by ordering it, saying that it was outrageous and that they were going to pay. Of course, they didn't do the thing. He claimed that they did. Just unbelievably irresponsible, particularly given the context. How he never wants to talk about this problem. So I was obviously very upset about this at the time. We talked about it a lot. We revisit it when there are new news hooks about it including DHS announcing that there were like some minor consequences handed down after many months of an investigation that had nothing to do with the alleged whipping. They just had to backfill something to punish these guys. 
because the boss had told them to. Just absolutely corrupt, indefensible, and even more demoralizing for a group of people already beaten down by the utterly failing policies of this administration on this front. Now, does it get worse? Yes, it does. This is new today. Bill Malugin, our colleague here at Fox News, covers the border as well, if not better than anyone else in the business, which is why the White House attacks him in Politico and elsewhere. Malugin got his hands on some documents. I'll let him explain. This is from Fox News earlier, Cut 27. An email obtained through a records request reveals that DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was privately alerted by DHS officials that the whipping narrative behind the infamous horseback Border Patrol photos wasn't true. But at a press conference hours later, Mayorkas didn't stop or dispute that narrative. The email was obtained by the Heritage Foundation, which filed a Freedom of Information Act request with DHS seven months ago, seeking all DHS communications about the incident with the horseback agents in Del Rio, Texas, last summer. Now, last week, DHS finally produced an initial batch of emails, including one from September 24, 2021. And it showed what? Cut 28. Now, hours after the president's comments, Marsha Espinoza, DHS's top public affairs official, sent this email to Secretary Mayorkas and other DHS officials at 12.05 p.m. In the email, Espinoza sends Mayorkas a news article and literally highlights that the photographer who took the infamous whipping photos said in an interview that things aren't what they seem with his photos, that he and his colleagues never saw agents whipping anybody, and that his images were being misconstrued. But two and a half hours after receiving that email, Mayorkas joined a press conference at the White House where he failed to dispute the whipping narrative that President Biden and other politicians were pushing. Instead, he called the images horrifying. And Malugin gave DHS an opportunity to respond to this. In fact, he tried to get a response for days, heard nothing as he lays out in Cut 29. And during his comments, Mayorkas never disclosed the new facts he had been alerted to in that email just hours beforehand. And the president of the Border Patrol Union says that email shows there was just no interest in the truth. And a 10-month-long CBP investigation later concluded the horseback agents never whipped anybody. They didn't even carry whips, though they are now facing up to 14-day unpaid suspensions for administrative violations. I reached out to DHS two days ago for comments on this story. I followed up again this morning, but I have received no response from DHS whatsoever. Joining us now to react to all of this is Congressman Chip Roy of Texas in the 21st Congressional District down there. And Congressman, you just heard that laid out from Bill Malugin. You know, you would imagine maybe that DHS could do something like put out a statement or an email to Malugin saying the secretary never saw this email and obviously, as it turns out, our personnel were not whipping migrants. We're happy that that was the case. Some people may have jumped the gun. The secretary apologizes for being party to that. Instead, of course, we didn't hear that. We heard absolutely nothing in response because this was the political narrative. It sounds like they are still sticking to it in spite of the facts all these months later. What do you make of this? Well, first of all, I want to give a lot of um praise to Bill Malugin being on the uh, front lines of this story, literally uh, at the border. Anytime I'm at the border, I'm often seeing Bill. Uh, I saw him in D.C. when I was there last. Uh, he's 
getting the facts out for the American people to understand it. And credit to the Heritage Foundation for their Freedom of Information Act request to bring this to light. Uh, you've laid out all the facts. I don't need to repeat them, except for the one thing that I think merits uh, repetition, which is the extent to which the, the Secretary of Homeland Security called this horrifying and talked about it being a part of systemic racism, all a part of the Democrat narrative now fully in the light of day with the knowledge that the secretary knew what, what of course, we all already knew because we saw the pictures, but he knew it and he was advised of it and he acted anyway. You know what, Congressman, since, since you are quoting him, let's play that exact soundbite that you're referencing. I think it's great that you're raising it and emphasizing it and underlining it. Let's have the audience listen. This is the Secretary of Homeland Security that day, Cut 34. In the midst of meeting these challenges, we, our entire nation, saw horrifying images that do not reflect who we are, who we aspire to be, or the integrity and values of our truly heroic personnel in the Department of Homeland Security. The investigation into what occurred has not yet concluded. We know that those images painfully conjured up the worst elements of our nation's ongoing battle against systemic racism. Horrifying systemic racism. He talked about the investigation, which took the better part of a year, which is insane. You don't need months and months to go over the photos and the footage. They blew it for political reasons. Now they're trying to hang these guys on some like administrative thing for a couple weeks suspension just to save their own face. That is what he said after he was informed by his own team that there was no basis to the allegation, whether he saw it or not. He previously had kind of pushed back on it, but then he got the script from the White House. This is what we're doing for politics. He went forward with it, having been advised that it wasn't true. I think knowing and understanding that it wasn't true, he went forward anyway, Congressman. And I guess my next question to you is this. How can this man, Alejandro Mayorkas, continue leading this agency, the Department of Homeland Security, when he was willing to smear his own frontline agents based on a lie for political reasons? How can he continue in that position? Well, Guy, he cannot. It's that simple. And the fact is, Republicans have got to understand what we're facing here. They get hung up on some legalistic definition that in their mind is high crimes and misdemeanors, but they're wrong. When you look at what the founders meant, the fact here is you have an individual for which this episode that we're discussing at the moment is only emblematic of a larger problem. And that problem is an utter refusal to actually follow both the letter and the spirit of the laws of our country to have a secure border. The result of which, Guy, are dead Americans and dead migrants, the empowerment of cartels, the empowerment of China, and the undermining of our national security. These are all undeniable truths, yet he is doing this on a daily basis. He has committed numerous impeachable acts by lying to Congress, lying that we have operational control of the border, lying about the Border Patrol agents now with the firm evidence that we have that he knew better. But frankly, Guy, I didn't need that evidence. We saw the photos. We knew the truth. 
to your point, they then took a year to do their, you know, quote, review of this whole thing. Meanwhile, it took seven months to respond to the Heritage Foundation, which was five months after the incident. They took eight months to respond to my request to ask how many people are coming into our country who are affiliated with terrorist organizations or state sponsors of terror. Now they're finally publishing that information because we demanded it. The fact is we're now close to 100 of those individuals after three and a half million people have been apprehended, one to two million released. We don't know the exact numbers because they won't be honest about it. A million gotaways. We've got dead Americans, including four people in Hayes County, Texas, which I represent, four kids who are dead from fentanyl, and the 72,000 Americans who have died, which is more than the entirety of the Vietnam War in terms of American casualties. The blood is on his hands. He knows it. He's disregarding the law, and he should be impeached for it. When you hear the vice president say, as she did this week, having just been to your state, didn't go to the border, didn't mention the border in her fundraisers and the abortion event that she went to, not a mention of the border from the borders are. Then she went on a late night show with uh, some some comedy show uh, earlier in the week and was asked about your governor and Governor Ducey and Governor DeSantis and what they've done sending some of these immigrants, these illegal migrants to so-called sanctuary jurisdictions, supposedly supposedly proud ones. Uh, and she said that this is not leadership and real leadership requires being part of a solution to the problem. I mean, I'm at a loss to understand what solution she's been a part of. Well, talk about playing politics. You're talking about a president, a vice president, a secretary of Homeland Security and accomplices in the Democratic Party in Congress who are perfectly fine using these human beings, these actual human beings seeking a better way of life in America, using them as political pawns. That's what's happening. And 53 of them cooked in a tractor trailer in San Antonio, which I represent. To listen to them talk about Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis supposedly playing politics for taking volunteers and sending them around to other places in the country so they can understand that this is real. While Democrat leaders in El Paso send people all over the country, while DHS puts people on flights, put them on planes, trains, buses all over the country, because we have 4,000 people crossing a day, I get a call from the mayor of Uvalde, Texas. Notice Democrats aren't calling the mayor of Uvalde, Texas right now when it's not politically expedient to exploit a gun tragedy. They're not listening to the mayor when he's talking about the bailouts and the damage and the, and the danger caused to the citizens of Uvalde and the people of South Texas, while the vice president refuses to even come to the border, even come to South Texas. The president and the vice president can't even find it on a dang map, guy. That's the reality of what we're facing. But the American people are fed up. That's why Myra, that's why Cassie, that's why Monica, that's why all of these people are doing well, because Hispanics are tired of being taken for granted as, quote, unquote, brown people who pick crops in Florida, according to the Speaker of the House. Yep. You're just mentioning and name checking some of the Latinas running down in your state. And there's some real pickup opportunities as there's a bit of a sea change underway, it would seem, along that border among Hispanic voters, something we've talked about quite a bit here on the show. Chip Roy, Republican congressman from Texas 21, our guest here weighing in on this new update to the so-called whipping smear and the controversy that played out last year. And we're getting those new details, as we heard from Bill Malugin earlier. It's just uh, I would call it unbelievable, but sadly, it is completely believable. It is entirely uh, of of a piece with what we have seen from this administration for the last nearly two years. But we wanted to bring it to you here. Congressman Roy, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thanks, Guy. I've been doing well. I haven't seen you since March Madness. Now we're in the World Series. We've got to get together again. But God bless you. Thanks for what you do. Let's do it. Sounds good. But right now we're up on a break. We'll take it and be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Quick Fox News alert for you. This coming out of Connecticut, breaking moments ago, a jury has decided that Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, needs to pay nearly a billion dollars, $965 million in damages to families who suffered from his lies about that horrible school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, Sandy Hook. He spread a lot of insanity about that massacre and got sued and looks like he is going to be paying an awful lot of money to those families. So that news just breaking. Meanwhile, we've talked a lot about negative TV ads, negative campaign ads over this campaign. That's a big part of politics. Sometimes there are positive ads that catch your attention. This one featuring the wife of Governor Ron DeSantis, Casey DeSantis, the first lady of Florida, uh, was really something. Listen to Cut 38. I get asked all the time, who is Ron DeSantis? He's the kid who grew up right here in Florida, working his tail off, paying his own way through school, then volunteering to serve in the Navy and deploying to Iraq. He's the man who I fell in love with from the moment we met. And he's the dad of three very rambunctious, energetic children. Mamie, our two-year-old little comedian. Madison, our beautiful, sweet five-year-old. And Mason, our four-year-old athlete. But if you want to know who Ron DeSantis really is, when I was diagnosed with cancer and I was facing the battle for my life, He was the dad who took care of my children when I couldn't. He was there to pick me off of the ground when I literally could not stand. He was there to fight for me when I didn't have the strength to fight for myself. That is who Ron DeSantis is. Wow. A personal look inside a home and a health struggle. And she's now cancer-free, thank God. But that is an ad that is striking out of Florida. Next hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. From our affiliate, 106.3 FM Extra here in Atlanta, it's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. Our middle hour now underway. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free on demand. We'd like to remind you of that. Also of our social media handle, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Fox News alert. The Dow closing down again, 28 points today to 30. Check that, 29,210 This coming off of some bad economic news on inflation that we will be talking about coming up later on this hour. It is not great news and the markets reacting again. President Biden downplaying recession fears. Is that credible? We'll get into all of that in a little while. Joining us now is Josh Krasauer, senior senior politics reporter, I should say, at Axios and a Fox News radio political analyst. And it's time now for an election update. Democracy 2022. All right, Josh, welcome back to the show. Good to have you. Hey, Guy, good to be back. 
I want to start actually and maybe just focus today on House races, because you and I talk all the time about Senate races, and I'm sure we will revisit those again in the coming weeks. But as you're watching some tea leaves develop in the House of Representatives, the overall battle for control of the House, I'm starting to see a couple indicators. The Democrats are you know, getting some race change in terms of projections, you know, a few race changes in their favor a couple places. But you're also seeing it on the Republican side. Uh, some interesting data out of Rhode Island, some eyebrow raisers out of Oregon, some interesting ones in Virginia. Maybe just delve into a couple of the snapshots, what you're hearing, and then what you're seeing more broadly on the House front. Well, Guy, let me give you some some data that I'm working on and <laughs> reporting out for, for a piece at Axios. But here, here's a stat that I think is going to uh, open a lot of people's eyes. House Republican groups, whether it's the National Republican Congressional Committee or the Congressional Leadership Fund, uh, the Super PAC, are spending about $30 million in districts that Biden won by double digits against Democrats or against, you know, a Democratic uh, congressman, against a Democratic candidate. $30 million going into deep blue territory on the battleground map. And that is a telltale sign that the map is expanding. Rhode Island, you mentioned Alan Fung in Rhode Island. There's a race in Connecticut that hasn't been competitive for about uh, 10 years that is is a, is a toss-up race in, in northwest Connecticut. Oregon, three House races that went for Biden by double digits in Oregon are getting huge Republican investments, and they're all – or I think all of them now are toss-ups according to the Cook Political Report. This is a, a leading indicator. <laughs> you, don't, you don't go on offense in – able to win those seats you don't you don't these are not charity cases and that suggests to me that in the final weeks of this midterm election the vibes we've talked about the vibes the vibes are starting to move in a decidedly republican direction in northern virginia i saw you had highlighted some spending that the democrats are now involved in in a seat that was recently republican and then flipped very hard uh in the trump years to the left and it looks like they're pretty nervous about that seat, at least based on the money that they're pouring into Virginia 10. Yeah, so this is uh, Jennifer Wexton's district. It's a pretty blue, it's a, it's a very blue district. It, it voted for Biden by almost 20 points in, in 2020. Now, one of the interesting stats in this district, though, is that Governor Yunkin almost carried it in last year's governor's race. So there, there was sort of a sugar high for Democrats during the Trump years. It's still a Democratic seat, clearly, but it's not at quite as overwhelmingly so right now. And the Republican candidate uh, in that race raised over a million dollars. He's on, he's on TV. His ads are pretty compelling. And he's, he's running as sort of a mainstream Republican who's appealing in the suburbs. And he's uh, spending a lot of money. And then Wexton, I noticed, and it's not the outside Democratic groups, it's Wexton's campaign, is basically throwing the kitchen sink at, at the Republican uh, and calling him sort of an election denier. You know, he, he's running a moderate campaign, but she's trying to tie him to the January 6th riots. You know, I always, I always like to look in the final week or two of a campaign where I see a lot of what I call Hail Mary ads, ads that just go above and beyond what people believe. And just because you're losing a race and you're, you're, you're trying to kind of act in desperation to attack your opponent. I, I don't think Wexton is necessarily in deep trouble, but the fact that she's going so hard negative against a Republican no one's really heard of, and he's getting good reviews in, in, the, in the local community from a whole host of people, that's a sign that, boy, again, 
the vibes are shifting, some of these blue areas that look like they were going to be pretty safe for Democrats in the final few weeks moving in a Republican direction. Josh, have you followed this situation, a controversy in Indiana where there's a toss up race and uh, a young woman running for that seat? And Politico did a story about her. And the allegation is that Politico had leaked to them information about her time in the military where she was the victim of sexual assault. So she's a sexual assault survivor. She's the Republican in the race. This was not something that she agreed to uh, put out publicly. She has uh, put out a whole series of statements and tweets denouncing this leak about something extremely traumatic and personal that happened to her, but she's confirming that it happened. People are wondering where the leak came from, but that's sort of, to me, a very ugly episode in a very competitive race in Indiana where that piece of information went public in a way that she was not okay with, but now it's a fact in that race, apparently. Yeah, so the thing that confused me a little bit was I read the profile and I thought it was actually a pretty favorable profile of her. So I don't, I, you know, I, I get that this is extremely sensitive information and it was, a, I, I believe it was a, a FOIA request that the, the, the reporters did to get to learn about this incident that happened during her military service. And look, those are decisions that reporters and sources have to make, and there's always a, a back and forth that that happens. I, I read the story. I thought it was a good story. For The candidate's name is Jennifer Ruth Green. She's an African-American military veteran running a very competitive race in a Biden uh, district in northwest Indiana. But look, I, I kind of – I was sort of surprised that they made as big a deal of, of, of this as they did because I thought the story was a, was a pretty good one for her, the profile of her and the fact that she can actually turn a, turn a very blue district into Republican territory. Well, again, I, I'm not really sure if I can speak to this, but I would imagine if there was a story about me that overall on balance was pretty positive, but it slipped in an extremely personal private detail about a traumatic – crime that I was the victim of without my permission and without my knowledge. I mean, that might that might poison the well for the story in my mind. Yeah. And as far as I understand, there was discussion between the reporter. I mean, I I, I, I don't have I'm not privy to the, the inside baseball conversations that took place. But my, my, my political read is that I thought, hey, number one, the story was fairly favorable to Ruth Green until she raised questions about about the details, you know, mentioned and, and perhaps leaked in the, in the story. Um, but also number two, like I, I, I don't know, maybe I, 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 don't, I don't know. I actually don't know if it's good politics to kind of not to focus on this, to focus on not not the main issues that voters care about. This is out there. It's obviously something she, she feels uh, aggrieved by. Um, but again, I read the whole story. I did not think that there was any like attempt by, you know, I, I thought it was a very fair and very, frankly, favorable story for, for, for the candidate. Josh, 30 seconds, President Biden to Colorado and then Oregon, where I guess they feel like he might be not damaging or helpful. Quickly, your thoughts. Yeah, well, Oregon's very interesting. It's one of the states where uh, Republicans are su- doing surprisingly well. They're in the lead in polling in the governor's race, and there are three House races, as we were talking about, that were Biden double-digit districts. Uh, they're all in play. Two of them are toss-ups. I think one's a lean, lean Democratic seat. Yeah, still. and Biden but, is basically toxic most places, and most Democrats in competitive races don't want to be anywhere near him. Maybe Oregon an exception. I guess we'll see soon enough. Josh Krausauer, our guest on The Guy Benson Show, returning after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening. Last night on CNN, President Biden sat down with Jake Tapper for an interview, his second broadcast interview in what, a month? 
after going radio silent, I guess TV and radio silent, since February. We had knocked him for that nine or ten months off the grid, not doing interviews. And that's a format that matters where there can be follow-ups and sustained questioning. He was avoiding them. Then he finally gave one to 60 Minutes a couple weeks ago, and now another one. So we've been blessed with another Biden interview from the president of the United States. I'm sure the White House believes we should all be very grateful. So this was CNN. There were a number of questions asked about the economy, obviously. And you'll be very pleased, I'm sure, and relieved to know that the president does not believe that there's a recession coming. But if there is a recession coming, don't worry. It'll be a little itty-bitty recession, just a baby recession. Here is Biden last night, cut 17. Should the American people prepare for a recession? No. Look, they've been saying this now how uh, every every six months they say this. Every six months they look down the next six months and see what's going to happen. It hadn't happened yet. It hadn't. Be, there, there has. There is no. There's no guarantee that there's going to be. I don't think there will be a recession. If it is, it'll be a very slight recession. Okay, let's just stop there for a second. Don't worry. No, don't prepare for a recession. They keep saying this. They keep saying this and it doesn't happen. Actually, it already did happen, Mr. President. Based on the definition of a recession, we're already in one. Back-to-back quarters of negative growth. That box has been checked. That happened on your watch. That is the literal textbook definition that economists and the political class collectively have been using forever of what constitutes a recession, we're in one right now. You look at polling of the American people. There was one that I saw, I think, as recently as last month. If you look at polling on this question, are we in a recession? Does it feel to you like we're in a recession? It's not just a majority of Americans who say yes. It's a supermajority of Americans in a lot of the polling who say, yes, we're in a recession. That's how people are feeling. And we have the back-to-back quarters of back-to-back negative GDP growth, i.e. contraction. We've already met the definition. Q3 might go up just a little bit. The expectation is very anemic growth. And then real concerns that we will dip back into a deeper recession moving forward. And we have a lot of the experts, the IMF, putting out a statement just yesterday That it's going to get worse before it gets better. The worst is yet to come. You've got some experts, top financiers, top banks and economists saying, yeah, it's going to be bad. There's going to be a tough, painful recession coming. I saw Jamie Dimon was talking about this. Concerns now about layoffs, perhaps down the line. And here's the president almost like snarking about the critics defying the critics, oh, they keep saying it's coming, it hasn't happened yet. It's literally here now already, by definition. With a lot of the experts saying, well, at least it's not that bad, now coming around to the view that it's going to likely get worse in the coming year plus. So, again, I think it is extremely politically foolish for Biden to laugh this off, basically, dismiss the idea that there might be a recession coming and the critics have been wrong all about it when we have already met the definition of a recession. And then also there's the credibility problem. This is a man who said very emphatically 
no, inflation will not be a problem. No one's worried about inflation. That's what he said a year plus ago. And then when inflation started, they said, oh, it's just very small, it's peaking, and it's transitory. And they stuck with that combination of excuses for months until they finally got around to acknowledging reality, bad inflation. They said, well, it's not our fault. We didn't do it. It's Putin. It's all this other stuff. They just change the spin as necessary. But the first part of the spin is reality doesn't exist. The problem isn't here. Don't believe what you're experiencing. And they did it on the number one issue, inflation. And now he's doing it also on recession. That exchange went on in cut 18. The idea that there's uh, something, there's an automaticity to recession is just not, is just not there. They keep, they've been predicting this off and on for the last. But you just said that a slight recession is possible. It, it is possible. Look, it's possible. I don't anticipate it. But I do think, look, we talk about the impact on families. The families are, they have reason to be concerned about energy prices. They have reason to be concerned about a whole range of issues. So, yes, maybe there, it's possible there, there could be a slight recession. I don't anticipate it. Sir, there's no anticipating necessary. It's here. I know the White House doesn't want to use the traditional definition of recession. But for the rest of us, for whom words have meaning and that matters, we're in a recession right now. You could call it a slight one which is what you're saying might be possible down the line, even though it's with us at this exact moment. But the idea that, oh, there might be a slight recession next, it's possible, but he's not anticipating it. This is not going to be reassuring for anyone. Because as I said, the credibility bank is empty on these issues with this administration and this president in particular. Do you have any confidence, even if you're like a left-leaning person or a Democrat, do you have any confidence when Joe Biden says, oh, no, there's not going to be a recession, I don't anticipate that? Setting aside the current recession, right? Let's just pretend that it doesn't exist. Given his track record and what he said on inflation and how that talking point or those talking points have evolved, do you actually gain any sense of confidence when Joe Biden goes on television and says, oh, I don't anticipate a recession. If there is one, it'll just be slight. I can't imagine anyone who's lived as a sentient human being through the last year and a half would watch a clip like this and say, oh, well, good. We're, we're good. We're good. Thank God. I think even hardcore partisans deep down don't believe it. And oh, by the way, relatedly, Breaking earlier today, the Fox News headline, wholesale inflation rises more than expected in September. Market Watch Economy explaining U.S. wholesale prices rose 0.4 percent in September, PPI shows. That is double Wall Street's forecast. Little signs of easing inflation pressures. Core PPI also up 0.4 percent in the month and 5.6% in the past year. So here's one inflation measure on wholesale prices. Wall Street expected it to go up a little bit again in September, and it went up even more. It went up by double what the experts were predicting. So I guess they'll have to tell us that that's a backward-looking metric and 
don't worry, it's going to peak. Maybe it's peaking in October. Because obviously it didn't peak in September or August. Had they scheduled a celebratory White House event today on inflation? Are they going to do a big wholesale prices are down fireworks show tonight? That's how they handled inflation last month. Let's see if they've learned anything, at least from a PR perspective. But again, the PR only goes so far. The numbers are what they are. The reality is what it is. The lived experience of Americans is what it is. And they can't wriggle away from that. Although they're certainly trying. I don't know what choice they have. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this. I want to talk about an interview on NBC yesterday with a Democratic Senate candidate causing a lot of controversy. We'll delve into it as soon as we come back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's program and the broadcast week here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast is always free. So last night on NBC, there was an interview, the first in-person interview that John Fetterman has done since his stroke. He is the Democratic nominee for Senate in Pennsylvania. And right out of the gate, the reporter who did the interview, Dasha Burns, said this on NBC News, sort of setting up the conversation and making the point that when there was not closed captioning where he could read what was being said, he was having some trouble processing or understanding some of the chit chat, the small talk before the interview. Cut 14. We had a monitor set up so that he could read my questions because he still has lingering auditory processing issues as a result of the stroke. Just in some of the small talk prior to uh, the interview before the closed captioning was up and running, it did seem that uh, he had a hard time understanding our, our conversations. So I think that is pretty brave, frankly, of that journalist to report that. She didn't have to say that. She is disclosing something of relevance to the audience, knowing that she was going to get some real fierce pushback, not just from the Fetterman campaign and Democrats, but also a lot of reporters and journalists who might as well be members of the Fetterman campaign and Democrats, because effectively they are. They're rooting for Fetterman. They're rooting for his party to maintain control of the Senate. They have an interest in who wins this election, and they're on Fetterman's side. That's how journalists, many of them are. And sure enough, they came flooding onto Twitter, going after this woman, Dasha Burns. Several of them saying, well, I interviewed him and I didn't see anything like this. Well, on the Today Show, Burns was asked about that critique from her fellow journalists. The knives are out. I mean, if you do something, if you commit journalism against a Democrat in a way that might harm them in the teeth of an election cycle, the knives are going to come out for you, including from some of your colleagues. Clearly, she knew that, but she was having none of the bullying, and she pushed right back. Savannah Guthrie asked the question. Here's Burns responding in Cut 13. Other journalists who've also dealt with Fetterman came forward and said they had a different experience. 
Yeah, and Savannah, that's completely fair that that was their experience. We can only report our own. I will say it's important to note that according to the campaign itself, our team was the first to be in the room with Fetterman for an interview rather than via remote video conference. And uh, myself, my producer, and our crew did find that small talk before that captioning was, was difficult because of those auditory processing issues I mentioned. So these other people who are coming out saying, oh, I saw nothing of the sort. I interviewed the guy, heavily intimating that she's lying or a hack or doing some sort of hatchet job on Fetterman. None of those people actually saw him face to face and talked to him in that setting. They all did it via video with closed captioning where he's reading the words and then responding. That is a completely different question. That's a different environment. And Burns pointed out it wasn't just her. It was the producers and the crew. They all agreed that he was having some trouble. Now, is that the end-all, be-all of this campaign? No. If he can do this debate relatively well and pull it off, October 25th, he's only doing one for one hour. That's it. With all these concessions that he's extracted, including closed captioning and all this stuff. But if he can sort of navigate that debate okay, I think overall that part, that controversy, that issue of this campaign gets more or less neutralized. If not, right, if he really has a painful experience or performance, that could be very harmful to him. I think he's trying to bank as many votes as he can in the early voting before even agreeing to this single debate. But he was asked about the health issue and specifically about transparency, right? Everyone should root for him to fully recover. But he needs to do so in a way that is transparent with the voters of Pennsylvania, which he has absolutely not been up to this point. And during the interview, Dasha Burns asked Fetterman about it. Here's part of that back and forth in cut eight. So you say you're on the road to full recovery. But right now, voters really have to take your word for it. We've asked for your medical records. We've asked to have a conversation with someone from your medical team to interview your physician. You've declined those requests. Why? Well, I, I feel like we have been very transparent in a lot of different ways. When our doctor has already given a letter saying that I'm able to serve and to, to be uh, running. She follows up and cut nine. I mean, respectfully, that letter from your physician, that was six months ago. Don't voters deserve to know your status now? Being on in front of thousands and thousands of, of people and having interviews and getting around all across Pennsylvania, that gives everybody and the voters decide, you know, if they think that it's it's really the issue. There were other points in the interview where he was struggling more, other times where he was smoother and more lucid. That's not a response to the question. If you want to be transparent and you're only willing to do one debate and you do very few in-person interviews, in fact, this was the very first one of the campaign since the stroke, why won't you put out your medical records? Mark Kirk, who's a Republican, he was a U.S. senator. He lost in 2016. He had a stroke while he was a member of the U.S. Senate. It was debilitating. He was on his path to recovery. He was running for re-election. The centrist editorial board of the Chicago Tribune would not endorse him for re-election because of his stroke, the impact it was having on his ability to do the job, and his refusal to release medical records. I don't remember howls of criticism of the Chicago Tribune or all these journalists rushing to the defense of Republican Senator Mark Kirk in 2016, calling questions like that ableist and sort of trying to disqualify some of those concerns. I don't remember that. 
maybe it's because there was an election to win and they were all rooting for the Democrat. And he was a Republican who had a stroke. So those questions were perfectly fine and appropriate. And demands for transparency, well, that's the right thing. Shouldn't we all be rooting for transparency, especially as journalists? And then it's a Democrat in this position. And strangely, for many journalists, they have just completely reversed themselves. Or all of a sudden, they're offended by these types of questions and concerns. I think it speaks for itself, as will his performance on October 25th. At some point, you can't get around it. You can either do the job or you can't. Now, to me, all of this, for the most part, is a distraction from the real problem with John Fetterman. It's not his health. It's not whether or not he can understand small talk because of these auditory processing issues. It's not his medical records. It's what he believes. It's his ideology. It's his program. It's his record, which is absolutely radical. And it's the fact that he's just basically done nothing his whole life with his lifestyle propped up by his rich parents, giving him tens of thousands of dollars a year till he was 49. His first real paying job was lieutenant governor. Before that, he was a mayor of a failing city. And there's a report about that that I want to get to tomorrow on the show in some depth. This guy's record is not only thin and radical, it's a disaster. It is astonishing that he is a major party nominee for the United States Senate, let alone in a battleground state, let alone in a race that he has a 50-50 shot of winning. Stroke or no stroke, he belongs nowhere near the U.S. Senate. And I will have more on this, I promise, tomorrow. One of the most important races in America. We're not going to let it go. Here with 27 days left before the election. The Guy Benson Show continues. We shift from Pennsylvania to another crucial state here in Georgia next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show is back broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me here in studio is Scott Reinhold, known as Rhino. Yes. Here at Extra. He is co-host of The Morning Extra with Carlos Medina and Tug Coward every morning here on Atlanta's only conservative news and talk station, 106.3 FM, our great affiliate here in Atlanta. Rhino, it's great to see you. It's great to see you. I know it's a weird name, Rhino. Like, it doesn't fit politics. But well, I get called that all the time for different reasons. Well, of course. Yeah. And I, you know what's funny is, like, I've been a Republican my entire life. When I was 13 years old, um, I knew what I was going to be. I grew up in New York, and I knew I had to leave. But I've always been a Republican in my mind. But I realized I'm a conservative. So it still kind of fits because I don't consider myself a Republican as much. So it still kind of works. You guys every morning are talking about Georgia politics. We find ourselves talking Georgia politics seemingly every day on a national show for years because Georgia was so important in 20, again, 21 with the runoffs. And here we are, 2022, Senate race, gubernatorial race, a couple House races as well. Let's just start with the governor's race. I saw two polls out in the last 24, 48 hours, one from Trafalgar has Brian Kemp, the incumbent, up nine the Atlanta Journal-Constitution today has Kemp up 10, 51-41 over Stacey Abrams. Don't want to jinx anything. Don't want to talk out of turn. But based on everything that you're seeing and feeling here in the state, 
Is that race effectively over? Yeah, that 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 race is done. And and to be honest, Brian Kemp kind of the other day really shorted up in a really important speech that he did. And and I'll tell you why the black radio united for the vote invited him out, invited Stacey Abrams out as well. And this was one of those things where it could have been a trap. He was walking into. I actually heard this some of this in the Uber today. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the. The thought was he's going to come here. He's going to have to explain some of the things that he's done. That he's done. One of them is what they call criminal carry on the left. It's a constitutional carry, of course, to most of us. And that was one of those that you knew was going to come up, and it did. It came up at the end. Was it a forum where they asked questions? Yes. And, okay. So it was more of a town hall forum rather than. So Stacey Abrams went first, and and all she did was really just talk about how bad Brian Kemp was for the state. Brian Kemp went with a different direction. He went in there saying. Here are my policies. This is what I put through. And then when the questions were asked, here's why. He defended what he was doing and the constitutional carry. This was the really divisive one. And when you started hearing people in the background, because that was the way the question was phrased to him, was we have a lot of crime here in Atlanta. We have too much crime here in Atlanta. And guns are the reason for this crime. And you have passed a criminal carry where criminals are now going to be able to carry guns. And Brian Kemp stopped it right there and said, Hold on. Criminals don't care about the law. Criminals are going to go ahead and carry no matter what. As they have been. Exactly. What we've seen and what we know is if we give you an opportunity to protect your family and protect yourselves, you're going to do it. And this is your right as a citizen. And the entire mood in the audience went from, yeah, yeah, too much crime to, oh, he's right. He's He's right. How was he received overall at the end of it? He was received really well, and I was shocked because I was listening with someone else as we were listening to the entire um, broadcast because they broadcast it, and this was good because these were black radio stations here in the state of Atlanta, so the or in the state of Georgia and in Atlanta, and they were able to hear what he was actually talking about, and right. they started to relate. When he started talking about, we're all struggling. I'm a business owner. I've been a small business owner. I've been where you are. I came up from nothing. I worked hard. I became who I am. I didn't want anybody else to help me. I wanted to be able to succeed at whatever level I got to. And people started relating to that right away. And then when you got to when it when it came to protecting their families, people were like, wait a minute. And then he brought out the stat. He said, do you know who is buying guns? It's black women. Black women are buying guns right now. Black families are buying guns because they're scared. And there's no reason for you to be scared. The criminals are going to have the gun. They're not going to listen to the law. You need a chance to be able to protect yourself. And I'm giving you that. See, I feel like this is right here a great example of a politician, just any leader, being confident in what they believe, understanding deeply why they believe it, having the arguments to back it up, and then crucially showing up. Maybe where you're not expected or you're not expected to do well. Some people might just take a pass on what could be a hostile environment. A lot of these candidates around the country aren't even agreeing to debate their opponents. He showed up. Sounds like he did pretty well. And here we are with less than four weeks to go. And you've got back-to-back polls with Kemp up 9 to 10 points. So it sounds like you're saying that race, barring some crazy miracle for Stacey Abrams, that race is likely over and he'll win relatively big. Which brings me to the Senate race. Yeah. In both of those polls, Herschel Walker is down, not big, but down slightly, margin of error. Raphael Warnock below 50%. There's the whole possibility again of a runoff potentially. But Walker's definitely taken something of a hit. Nationally, we've been seeing all the stories from down here. How is it resonating among Georgians? 
it's really divided. This is a tough race for Herschel Walker. This is somebody who he has the benefit of not having a record. So Warnock can't really hit him on a record. And he also has the benefit of that Warnock does have a record, and he has a record of voting with Joe Biden 96% of the time. So the economy is number one here, and the people of Georgia know that, and they understand that. So this is something that is going to translate. I do want to say something about this poll. This is an AJC UGA poll. This is a very far left-leaning newspaper. This is a poll that's geared, and the listeners and the people that they poll, when you look at it, are, are leaning left. So when you see a margin of error of three points and you see Warnock's at 46 and Herschel is at 43, that tells you that, yeah, this is a very close race and, and they're, so they're Walker, neck and neck. Walker could still pull this off. He could still pull this off. And he might because the one benefit he has is that this is a new conspiracy that really that he is involved with and it's not proven. Nothing's been proven. And until it becomes a scandal, because it's not a scandal yet. Right. Once it becomes a scandal, if there's any proof, if these newspapers and when you read them nationally, you read one thing in there that there is no confirmed. No one can confirm this except for the Daily Beast. So when you see that the New York Times is like, well, here's the allegations, but none of it's been confirmed. It doesn't become a scandal. Do people because of folks who might be open to voting for Herschel Walker, it seems to me that it would have to be a combination of folks who either believe his denials. I'm not sure that I do, frankly, or. They don't really care because Warnock's worse and it's a matter of numbers in the Senate. That seems like the coalition that it would take to get Walker elected. Are there enough of that combined group to put him over the top? Yeah, I think he has to beat Warnock and Warnock needs to beat the economy. Warnock can't beat the economy. Herschel can beat him by hitting these issues and staying focused on these issues. A lot of people don't realize when you first heard Herschel Walker speak, if you saw him on Hannity, if you saw him on Fox News, you saw them kind of giving him the topics and just kind of saying, you agree with holding on to guns, right? Guns, Second Amendment, that's important in Georgia. Yes, yes, yes. Well, he changed, and we called it Herschel 2.0, where he started hitting and understanding these topics. They took time back, they reorganized their campaign, and then the next thing you know, here we go. Herschel started hitting the economy. He started pushing the issues, and that all of a sudden got him close and then even leading at one point. And the first and only debate is happening this week, Friday, I believe, here in the state, and all eyes on that debate could be very interesting. Yeah, and Herschel needs to deliver. He needs to talk about the issues. And the one thing that I love about what he said is he wants Warnock's people to be there. He wants everybody who's going to vote for Warnock to be there so he can show them the kind of false prophet that he is because that's what he's going on. This is a pastor who believes in abortion and thinks it's okay. He talks about the LGBTQ community in a way that people are like, hey, is that really what a pastor does? And then he talks about Easter is about something other than Jesus. That's something that the religious right here in Georgia, they're going to take to heart and they're going to get behind him no matter what the controversy about him allegedly paying for an abortion is. Getting behind Herschel. And that will be a debate we'll be watching and covering here on the show. Scott Reinhold is Rhino here on Extra 106.3 on The Morning Show every single morning. Great to see you. Thanks for stopping by. Great to have you. And by the way, Christine, I hope she got on you about the Golden Girls because I was really upset that you had never watched the Golden Girls and didn't understand it. And I know she said she was going to start watching it with you, and I hope you got involved in it. It's a great show. Christine bullies me regularly, as you know, (laughs) and vice versa. So I'm sure I'll hear even more about that now that you've brought it up again. Rhino, thanks. Thank you. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Kim Strassel of The Wall Street Journal joins us when we return. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is our happy hour here on this Wednesday on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. Broadcasting from Extra 106.3 in Atlanta, our great affiliate here in the Peach State. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is always free on demand. That's every day. No charge to you. At Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow us, there's bonus content there. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. It's all over the place here in Georgia and elsewhere as they expand. TheLongDrink.com for all that information, including where it's sold near you. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. With us now is Kim Strassel, who is Potomac Watch columnist at the Wall Street Journal, part of the editorial board, Fox News contributor. Her latest book is Resistance at All Costs. I follow her on Twitter at Kim Strassel. And Kim, it's great to have you back here. It's always great to be with you, Guy. And it was wonderful to see you yesterday. We were on special report together on the panel, and it was a very unusual special report from my perspective. Number one, you were in town and on set, so it was very cool to see you in the green room. It started just to sort of pull back the curtain a tiny bit for folks at home. The show started, as it always does, at 6 p.m. Eastern. We were on set. The panel came on during the A Block to react to some of the latest political projections and sort of preview of the 2020 midterm elections. So we gave our analysis in that very first segment. Then we went back to the green room and had a few segments off, getting ready to return on set with Brett and have a conversation about other issues later on in the show. While you and I were sitting in the green room, you know, shooting the breeze about various things, catching up on life, at one point the show was on in the background, and I've been glancing over at it. There had been a gentleman there in the green room with us earlier when we came back. He made some small talk with us, and then he went out on set for his own segment with Brett. And I looked over at the screen, and I could just see from some body language that things had gotten a little tense between Brett Bayer, our colleague, and a man named David Priest, who's a former intelligence officer. They had discussed a few different topics, and then it turned to something Mr. Priest had done. Namely, he was one of those dozens of former intelligence officers and officials who signed that letter in 2020 suggesting very strongly that the Hunter Biden laptop matter was Russian disinformation. And Brett was basically calling him on it and asking if he had any regrets for signing on to that thing, given the fact that we all know now it was not Russian disinformation. It was never Russian disinformation. It was authentic. And he had lent his credibility, along with many others, uh, to basically leave a strong impression with the weight of who these people are and, and all of their experience behind it, leave the impression that this was just a dirty trick by Moscow to help Donald Trump win. And so that is why this exchange happened, why it kind of got heated. You and I got very quiet and turned up the volume on the screen and listened to Cut 23. Understanding how you characterize it, but he yeah. characterized it differently and used it in a debate just days before an election. Yeah, I'll let President Biden speak for himself. He's capable of doing that. What I'll do is say that it has all the classic earmarks of a Russian campaign in the way it was disseminated and propagated through media. Do you regret signing on to the letter? Oh, absolutely not, because Why? those words are still true. Do you think it has all the classic the earmarks? Oh, absolutely not. No, this Even is. Even though it wasn't true, it no. had the classic earmarks, but it wasn't true. 
What is not true? That it was Russian disinformation? That's not what we said in the letter. Read the actual letter, and we said we do not know if this is Russian disinformation. It has right? all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. Exactly. The I difference between an information campaign and a disinformation campaign and a misinformation campaign. It's not my fault if people don't look up definitions. No, it's not my fault if people don't know definitions of words, he said rather snippily. Brett then made the point the whole purpose of the letter was to have an effect, and it had an effect on the election. There was no regret, as you heard there from Mr. Priest. And he went on to say, well, there should be some nuance from the news media. Basically, it's everyone's fault except for the people who signed that letter. Kim, you and I were watching this in the green room. We eventually talked about it later on on the panel as well. Now you've had some time to digest exactly what went down yesterday your overall top line thoughts on that exchange. Yeah, and it was funny, Guy, when we were in the green room. I think you could see the dingling bells going off over our head at the exact same time. We were like, oh, this is what's happening. Yep. Um, it was it was absolutely remarkable to me. I mean, you heard that they're saying, well, you know, we, we caveated this and we can't be held responsible for how the press ran with it or how the president ran with it. Baloney, the entire purpose of putting it out there and writing that the way you did in the days just prior to in the weeks just prior to election was entirely so that the press would run with it and make that case. And so that the the Democrats had the ability to make the argument that this was all a bunch of Russian disinformation. Once again, Putin meddling in our elections, discounting. And the consequences of that were profound because among the many things that happened as a result of that letter and other claims – was that social media censored the story? Um, Biden made the case. There was, uh, I mean, sorry, social media censored the story that ultimately the New York Post put out, claiming that they had the laptop, it was real. There were so many things that happened as a result of this. And to now say, well, you know, not our fault if people read it that way, that's just, that's hooey. Yeah, the whole point, and we were talking about this on air and off air, the whole point of the letter was to impact the election. And here's the thing, Kim. In my mind, this is how I see it. If you write a letter like that and you affix your signature to this type of document, drawing on your experience and your expertise and getting dozens of your buddies together to do it, and the goal is to get something in front of the American people that has electoral significance, obviously the point is to affect the election. If you are right, if you have marshaled that experience and you are correct, then that's one thing and you let the chips fall. But if you do all of those things and you are incorrect and the suggestion slash assertion that you are putting out there with great authority that is then cited endlessly by the news media and the Democrats. And it was sort of this weird circular thing where the Biden people said it was disinformation and then the experts from the intelligence community said, oh, yes, it is disinformation. And then because it was deemed to be disinformation laundered through these intelligence people, then the media had an excuse to call it disinformation and not cover it. And the social media companies had their excuse to throttle it and to uh, basically censor it in the way that they did. It was this cycle that went through. This letter was a key cog of it. And It was wrong. I think that was the point that Brett was trying to make. You can say it had all the earmarks of a Russian intelligence operation. It wasn't a Russian intelligence operation. That was incorrect. So I think if you have put your name on the document for the purpose of affecting an election, it has that very effect as intended. And it turns out that what you are claiming based on your expertise was wrong. And we can basically all now agree it was wrong. 
you would think there would be maybe some feigned contrition and some mea culpa like, you know, this was our best thought at the time. Obviously, that was not true. But we didn't get any sense of that from this gentleman who seemed very defiant, proud that he signed the letter, wouldn't change anything. And anyone who has a problem with it, it's really on them. Yeah. You know, ask yourself, Guy, again, you just made the point, but why would you do that? Okay, these are a bunch of so-called intelligence experts with their they're out of government. Um, you know, if they really were concerned that there were earmarks, they would go back to their old buddies in the intelligence community, highlight those concerns, try to make sure that people were doing something about this in positions of authority and investigating this. That's not what they did. They came together, put out a letter. They know how this works. They wrote it in such a way that the media would go. And, you know, one of the things that really bugs me about this is one of the reasons that they don't feel any pressure to have to apologize is because other than guys like Brett Baer, who has them on and said, hey, don't you feel bad about this? The rest of the press is pretending none of this happened. Okay, they'd like to pretend all of this went away. It's well, remarkable. They were part of it. Watching, yeah, watching some of the coverage. You know, now in retrospect, the Washington Post and others saying, uh, well, "We've confirmed this laptop is true," without really acknowledging that they they were part of the whole cabal that squelched the story back then. You know, now they can't get away with it because the FBI is, uh, has admitted evidence. Prosecutors are, are considering bringing charges against Hunter Biden, and it's almost as if the last two years it didn't happen. One of the ways that you force a public officials or former public officials to express contrition is the press all comes down on them. By the way, if I were a press person and I'd use this and, and et cetera, I mean, I would apologize, but I'd also be furious at anybody who provided it and consider them untrustworthy and lambast them. But nobody's no. doing that because they're all involved. And it actually reminds me, and I'm sure you remember this as well. Do you recall after the 2012 election, it might have been a year or two later, Someone asked Harry Reid about his lies about Mitt Romney being a tax cheat. He went on the Senate floor and said, oh, Mitt Romney didn't pay any taxes. The words out, Mitt Romney didn't pay any taxes between these years. Totally false, completely untrue. Harry Reid said it. It was out there in the bloodstream. And then after the election, someone asked him, well, that was kind of a smear. And Harry Reid, paraphrasing, his response was, well, it worked, didn't it? He basically just smirked and said, look, I lied about the guy, but it got the job done. And Mitt Romney lost the election. That's what this kind of reminds me of, where this whole group talk about collusion, social media, big tech, mainstream media, intelligence officials or retired ones, the Democratic Party, a bunch of journalists. They all colluded to absolutely crush this story. And when it all fell apart, when the collusion was revealed to be based on B.S., A lot of them are just sort of averting their eyes and slinking away and pretending like it never happened. And in this case, when David Priest was asked about it last night on Special Report, he basically tattooed no regrets across his forehead, confident apparently that he won't really be challenged on it anywhere else. And maybe he's right. Well, it's exactly what they did in 2016, too, the giant collusion over the whole FBI investigation and the supposed Trump-Russia collusion thing. I mean, the thing that really still galls me about that guy is that the press was essentially taking dictation on a daily basis from the very folks within the FBI that we now know were the cause of all the misdeeds, okay, and who had everything to cover up and their mistakes as it went along, and they realized that they, they were going to need to sell this because they, they were wrong, that the dossier was garbage. Um, and the press fundamentally exists to to 
question government, to not take dictation. But in this case, I mean, this just goes to show why people are so disgusted by so much of the press is because they've completely thrown over those basic standards and they're now in league. Um, and, and, and that's why we increasingly have so little accountability for anybody's actions. So on the subject that you just raised, the Russia matter, the so-called collusion, which turned out, of course, to be discredited, even the Mueller investigation couldn't find collusion, even though it was kind of like this matter of faith that it was true. And just wait till the report comes out. They're going to nail Trump to the wall. And on the central claim, that was not proven. There was no evidence, in fact, of collusion. There's a brand new development on that front that I want to get to next with Kim Strassel, my guest on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. Kim Strassel is with us, and she just brought up before the break the whole Russia collusion hoax. After that all went down, the former Attorney General Bill Barr appointed a U.S. attorney, John Durham, to look into how that whole ball got rolling in the first place. How was this whole Russia fix such a dominant story in our politics for years, hanging over an entire campaign and then a presidency? And we have been slowly getting more information out of the Durham investigation, some indictments here, some new witnesses there. The latest is a report that One of the witnesses who was aware of all of this testified under oath to Durham and his probe that the FBI offered Christopher Steele, the former British spy who dreamed up or put together that infamous dossier paid for by the Democrats in the Clinton campaign, which served as the most important document from which this whole preposterous story emerged and the whole investigation was was, launched and bloomed. Could Christopher Steele actually prove the unproven claims in that notorious dossier. And if he could prove it, the FBI, according to this witness, was offering to pay Christopher Steele a million dollars for that corroboration, and he couldn't corroborate it. So I guess he didn't bank the million dollars. Of course, part of the reason is it wasn't true. It wasn't real. A lot of it was just made up. That seems like a pretty shocking thing for someone to have told John Durham that the FBI was willing to pay a million bucks to Christopher Steele to actually produce evidence backing the Steele dossier, and he couldn't do it. Completely shocking. I mean, here they are essentially begging him. Uh, We've got all this information. And, oh, by the way, uh, by this point, we've now submitted a bunch of it to uh, a a secret federal court to get a secret surveillance of a former Trump campaign member, Carter Page. So it would be really great if we can now actually prove that the stuff that we have submitted in this court document has any bearing in reality. Please do this for us. We'll pay you a million bucks. He can't do it. Okay. And then, you know, here's another really interesting thing that has come out of this. It was in a filing prior to when the trial began, but we're going to get some more information is that the man who's on trial, Igor Danchenko, who was the subsource to Christopher Steele, provided, uh, you know, a, a huge portion of what went into the Steele dossier. We now know that he's been indicted for five counts of lying to the FBI. Uh, The FBI meets with him in January of 2017, finally, by the way, months after that secret surveillance application had been filed. uh, They're chatting with him. He can't confirm anything in the source. In fact, he tells them that a lot of the stuff he gave them was gossip and innuendo. And, And rather than instantly back away from all of this, a couple of months later, the FBI actually hires him as a confidential human source. Yeah, they paid him. Keeps him on the payroll. 
for for years. It's just it's it's really remarkable. And I keep saying, guy, you know, I understand Durham has chosen to, to go with the most straightforward of charges and cases that prosecutors love to do, lying to the feds. The only thing that is problematic about that is that in order to get away with that, you have to present the FBI as dupes. But if you actually read through his speaking indictments, every fact tells the completely opposite story, that this was incredible FBI, either incompetence or partisan bias. You or they wanted point. to be duped, right? Right. Willing duped. Yeah, willing dupes. Yeah. Willing dupitude. Uh, we can maybe <laughs> coin that phrase here together. And I just want to uh, finish our conversation with this observation just from me speaking editorially. What we're discussing here, and it's like we're going back to 2015 and 2016 and the Steele dossier and then that letter back in 2020 about the Hunter Biden laptop. And there are probably some people who think to themselves, especially on the left, what a waste of time. They're still obsessed with these old battles. It's just so weird. It's not relevant anymore. It's not really going to impact the 2022 elections. Just move on. This is a strange right wing obsession. I'll just say what we're talking about here. What happened in 2020 and the suppression of a real story in service of an election outcome in 2020, and then this entire constellation of facts with the Steele dossier, the Russia matter in 2016, it is fundamentally, in my mind, outrageous and, in fact, corrupt. And just to walk away from it, just because it's no longer hyper-relevant, I think, is a mistake. I'm not willing to do it. And I say that as someone who openly is not a really a Trump fan. The fact that Trump was the wronged party politically in both of these cases is almost ancillary to me. It's the actual behavior, which is, I would say, borderline and in some cases outright corrupt, that has to be talked about. It can't just be swept under the rug like, oh, yeah, you can do these hugely corrupt things to impact an election and an entire presidency, two elections and an entire presidency. And it's like, oh, well, it's old news already. I just I don't accept that. And someone who obviously doesn't accept it either based on a huge amount of her work and the body of evidence that she keeps putting out in her columns on a regular basis, our guest Kim Strassel of The Wall Street Journal and a Fox News contributor. Kim, it was great to see you yesterday. We'll talk again soon. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Guy. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It is the Guy Benson Show happy hour. At the very start of today's show, just after we went on the air, we welcome back to the show Nikki Haley, former U.N. ambassador and governor of South Carolina, out with a new book, If You Want Something Done. Great conversation about the book and current events. Here's a little bit of that exchange with Nikki Haley. Conservatives, we we don't like to play identity politics. That is typically the, the other side's game. That being said... I think it is indisputable that women in positions of power and women in the public eye sometimes, if not often, are treated differently than men. Some ways maybe a little bit better, in a lot of ways worse, uh, indisputably worse. Given your leadership through your career, what has that been like for you? How has that difference played out in your mind? And how can we get to a place where there really isn't a difference between men and women in leadership positions, at least the way they're perceived, the way they're treated? Well, there were never any lines to the women's bathroom in any of the positions I held. <laughs> I mean, it was I was the first female minority governor in the country. I was the only woman on the Security Council at the U.N. But this is what I say, um, you know, in the book is is women don't need 
special treatment. We don't need any favors. We don't need quotas. We just need opportunities because when we get opportunities, we show what we're made of and we show how good we can be. And so, you know, was it tough? Yes, but I don't think it was any tougher because I was a woman. I think that, you know, at the time um, we were, South Carolina was the lowest in the country on women elected officials. But I don't think that's because men gave us a hard time. I think it's because women didn't run. And I think that, you know, what I hope this book does is remind women that if you work hard, you know, you can prove that you deserve to be in the room and you can make a difference. And that's the best thing that women can do is to make sure whatever they do, be great at it and make sure people remember you for it. I mean, yes, there's some challenges with women. I think men have some challenges, too. Um, But I don't want women to focus on that. I want women to realize that there's other women that come up behind them. And so it's really important that they represent well, that they be strong, that they do things that lift up everybody, and that'll make the biggest difference in the country. Nikki Haley is my guest, and I want to ask you about this. Turning to current events, President Joe Biden gave an interview to CNN's Jake Tapper last night, and one of the things that came up was Biden's reported comments at a Democratic fundraiser. He was kind of just sort of spitballing and riffing about nuclear Armageddon, and that got out everywhere, and a lot of people were critical of the the forum for that and sort of the loose words given how serious the subject was. And we've had expert guests on the show who have been critical of what he said. He was asked about it by Tapper last night. Here was what went down in Cut 16. Do you think in any way discussing this type of thing publicly, openly, Putin's possible use of nuclear weapons might have the opposite effect of what you want? It might make some of our wobblier European allies be even more scared of confronting Putin? Well, no, I don't think so at all. I think, look, it was a a directed... When I'm talking about I'm talking to Putin. He, in fact, cannot continue with impunity to talk about the use of a tactical nuclear weapon as if that's a rational thing to do. The mistakes get made, and the miscalculation could occur. No one can be sure what would happen, and it could end in Armageddon. Right, so there's that word again, Armageddon. He's saying that the remarks off the cuff at the political fundraiser were directed at Putin. Your thoughts on this? I think it's totally irresponsible. It was irresponsible because, one, you cause concern you know, from regular Americans that you're supposed to show that you're in charge, that you've got things under control. And you know that statement basically implied that you didn't. Secondly, it shows weakness in the eyes of the world. I mean, I don't want Putin hearing that. He's going to think that he's getting under Biden's skin. I don't want the Europeans and NATO to hear that because they need to continue doing what they're doing by supporting Ukraine and their efforts. And, you know, I, Guy, I can't figure out if he says these things to kind of make himself sound bigger or why he says these things. But it was just really irresponsible on every level. I mean, I don't know what the need of that was. I don't know if that's an internal fear that he has, um, but it was just wrong. And what we need to be doing is showing strength in our words and our actions. We need to be getting our coalition with, with NATO and the Europeans together so that Ukraine can stay strong and so that Ukraine can finish the deal. My full interview with Nikki Haley, former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador, available at GuyBensonShow.com. Also on the free podcast, the whole show, On Demand, totally free to you every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back the home stretch, we'll talk a little bit about where I'm headed here after the show. But 
more than that, we have to talk about an intervention, an intervention that must be staged for producer Christine. You are not going to believe this. It's true. And it's next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home Stretch, Wednesday edition from Atlanta. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for listening. Free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. That's available every day when the show is over, just a few minutes from right now. Well, as I mentioned, I'm here in Atlanta. I'm sneaking off to Truist Park to watch the Braves and the Phillies game two. The Phillies won game one here yesterday, seven to six. Braves trying to level the series one game apiece. Of course, I was kind of the Braves good luck charm last year. They weren't playing great. They had me come in, asked me to throw out the first pitch, which I did. I threw a strike, just for the record, according to the umpire. Threw a strike, didn't bounce it. Braves won the game, won the series, then went on to win the World Series. I've said before, I don't take full credit for that, but, you know, I'm still waiting on my commemorative World Series ring. For the role that I did have in the Braves championship run last year, and they want to extend it here this year, a big game tonight here in Atlanta. I'm, of course, happy because my actual team, the Yankees, won game one in the Bronx last night against Cleveland, 4-1. to Garrett Cole pitching like a number one starter, an ace should, which I was a little nervous about. Big two-run home run by Anthony Rizzo to basically put the game out of reach. So they're off tonight, game two tomorrow. So I can just enjoy the game here this evening in Atlanta. And I was just pretty happy, happy-go-lucky, carefree, heading into an evening of postseason baseball and maybe some complimentary beers is my understanding, perhaps, where my seats are and all of that. And then I was informed of something very disturbing, which turned my mood south quickly. A dark shadow cast over my visage. Producer Christine, who is the executive producer of this show, We have a lot of fun with Christine. We poke fun at her from time to time. She bullies us, as I mentioned earlier, a little bit. But it's all in good fun. But I'm starting to actually get concerned about this issue. We have ridiculed her about her vacuum cleaner saga now on and off for more than a year. We've talked about it here on the segment. She accumulated something like four or five different vacuum cleaners and kept buying new ones and then falling out of love with them and then buying yet another new replacement but not getting rid of the old ones or not selling them. Then she threw out all of them and bought another one recently. She finally found her favorite one. All the other ones were thrown in the garbage. Then she wasn't happy with that. And I thought at last the vacuum situation was over. We had brought that storyline here to a close The writers had run out of material. And then a little birdie mentioned earlier today, after I landed here in Atlanta, that there is yet another development on the vacuum front that may require at some point an actual intervention of the friends and loved ones of producer Christine to gather together and put some sort of an end to this madness, or at least try Christine What has happened? No, 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 no. Before we even get into the whole vacuum saga, I want you to give me two instances of when I have ever 
bullied you or anyone on this show because you can't come up with them. Well, I think what you're doing right now is bullying, first of all. And second of all, it's it's a classic technique of an addict, especially at an intervention, to try to change the subject immediately. Like, no, no, let's talk about something else as opposed to the problem that I have. So we're not going to – because we care about you and love you, Christine – We are going to stay on track here. We're going to stay focused and on topic. Your vacuum cleaner. There's another vacuum cleaner. There's another one, really? There's going to be. I'm doing some research right now. It is not my fault that these vacuums don't suck the way they should. What do you say? I don't know. Dan, what's the word? Like, clean. Function. They don't function the way They're you want them to. They're just not working the way that I would prefer them to work. And I guess when you spend only forty nine ninety nine on a vacuum, you get a forty nine ninety nine product. Well, except you also bought a very expensive brand. Oh yes, I did a six hundred dollar one. Yep, and you didn't like that one, and you threw that one away. I know. I, I'm going. I mean. I don't know Christine. what else to do. What What do you want me to do? I need a vacuum. It's, it's not a problem. Christine, I mean, you had like six of them. But they don't, they're not good. Obviously, they work well enough because people live with perfectly average or even subpar vacuum cleaners all the time and they just make do. I don't, what is the obsession here? Like, I honestly am worried that there is some sort of like, I, I don't want to over state this, but strange, abnormal fixation on this issue to the point that it goes beyond the performance of a vacuum cleaner? No. Are you saying that I'm crazy? Like, I are did you, not like, use say, that word. Are you saying that I'm crazy? Is that what you're trying to say on air? I, I'm not trying to say anything. I am expressing concern about your well-being, having now started to make plans to purchase, I think, your seventh vacuum cleaner since I've known you. You should not express concern to me. Go express concern to Hoover, Bissell, Shark, Dyson. I mean... All of them are bad. Like, just Roomba. All of them don't work, is what you're saying. And, Correct. And Correct. You have a therapist, don't you? Yes, Roy. Se- several, right? Yes, Roy. You want me to go talk to... You want me to spend the money I spend on Roy to talk to him about... The fact that vacuums don't work? Yeah, because otherwise you're going to be spending a lot more money on therapy and vacuum cleaners. You might as well, like, kill two birds with one stone here and put an end to some of this. And you know I am your non-licensed, non-compensated therapist as well. I'm part of your whole coterie of of help uh, when it comes to mental health and other things. I am urging you to talk to a professional about this strange vacuum cleaner compulsion because it was sort of funny and silly for a while. And then it was like, okay, she's throwing away the Dyson. That's where then, oh, she's throwing away all of her vacuum cleaners. She's got the new one and she loves it and she's finally stuck with it. And I thought we were done like a month ago. We were done. And now there's another one apparently going on the garbage heap and you're back to the research and purchase part of the cycle. I mean, it's just like, (laughs) It is a little... Okay, but the thing is, I'm not throwing away this vacuum, the one I just got. I'm going to keep that one. You're just going to have it sit there? Yeah, because if you take the, like, attachment off, it actually has good suction. So, like, I can get into crevices and corners very well. So, I like that. The use... What, Dan? 
You're going to have two vacuums using at once, so one to get into crevices and one to do the floors? So you, I'll bring the first vacuum out to do, like, crevices and, like, oh you know, like goodness. the little things. Then you bring the big vacuum out to do the rest of the apartment. Apartment. <laughs> <laughs> There's – have you ever been diagnosed as OCD? No, I have not. I mean, I'm not an expert – as I said, non-licensed, but this is sounding pretty OCD. You, one you, vacuum for one little type of corner and then another vacuum for the rest of it because the previous six weren't good enough? It there's, there's It's not me. I'm not the problem. It's the product that is the problem. It's the company that is the problem. It's not me. So when you say go get professional help, sure. If there is like a professional cleaning service that listens to the show and wants to call in and talk to me about what proper vacuum I should use, great. Let's do it. I'm not going to – I have plenty to talk to about with Roy, okay? (laughs) Plenty. We don't need to talk about vacuums. I think you might. How much money collectively have you spent on vacuums in the last two to three years? Well, the Dyson was six hundred. This was fifty nine ninety nine. Um, oh, that other that one that spun like the robot one that was like three hundred. Then we had the shark that was probably one sixty nine. So, like, way past a thousand dollars. Oh, oh, yeah. Is that bad? I mean, go back and listen to this segment on the podcast, okay. and just just listen to yourself, and just try to take yourself out of the mentality that the carpet isn't quite clean enough for your liking. And just like if this were someone else talking about their purchasing habits and you knew that person had a therapist. Wait, I don't have carpet. Talking about. Wait, this is hardwoods? Yes. Do you finally get it? I don't have. No, no, that makes even less sense. I don't have any carpets. That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) To me, the whole purpose of a vacuum cleaner is to clean carpets and rugs, and you can use, like, Swiffer or something like that on hardwoods. No, you, you, sure, you use that after you vacuum. There's, like, a whole process. Wyatt, for some reason, wants to jump in. I can't imagine what he has to say. Wyatt, help, help. All, all, all I am going to say is that next week we are all going to be together as a team, and this needs to be discussed, and an intervention seriously needs to take place because this is just unhealthy behavior, Christine. We, we cannot allow this. Wow. I thought you would understand more when I said there's no carpet. I get that. But, Christine, th- th- there has been too many vacuums. This is this is bad, okay? I, I, I just think that we need to we need to just talk and, about this. And, by the way, can I just – I'll just add, there might be some cynics in the audience right now saying, okay, guys, you have absolutely beaten the vacuum joke or storyline to death – that would assume that we kind of made it up a little bit and we're just exaggerating. We're not. This is all real. I found out about this today. And at first I laughed, but then I did feel like a little bit queasy about it. Like, I can't believe we are back to this, Christine, and that you are returning to the interwebs to find the new Salvation vacuum cleaner that inevitably will be unsuccessful and insufficient in your mind. And the cycle is vicious and it will continue with lots of money going out the door for no good reason until someone puts an end to it. 
And whether it's our intervention in New York next week or you talking to Roy or some combination thereof, it's just, I mean, does Bobby know about this yet? Or is he going to find out about this listening right now? Uh, Bobby, I didn't want to say this, but since he's listening, I cannot tell a lie. Bobby also asked me this morning to talk to Roy about this. I kind of just laughed it off. But now there's two people telling me I should talk to three, four. <laughs> yeah, we're, all, we're all raising our hands. We think you need to seek some help on this because we care about you. And perhaps there's some deeper meaning to this. A root cause, as the vice president might say. Get into that with Roy. And if you're willing to share, feel free to bring that to the air or not. Just get the help that you need on the vacuum front. It's just too much. And with that, I'm going to head over to the ballpark. We're out of time here in Atlanta, back in this same studio tomorrow for The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.